When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What is your title? So SR means sister, right? Right. Sister Mary Catherine. My full name is Sister Mary Catherine of Jesus. Perry is my last name. And OP is because I'm a Dominican order of preachers. Oh, okay. Oh, wow. Okay. And of <laughs> of Jesus, is that particular or is that part um, of your H order? H-Nun takes a title when they get, the ha- they get their religious name. It's sort of something that maybe has a meaning to them. Some will take a, a special mystery like of the Trinity or, uh, you know, the Annunciation or whatever. But I just wanted to be of Jesus. So um, I, I use my title a lot. Some sisters don't use theirs that much, but I use it. Okay. It's like my last name, you know. Oh, okay. <laughs> my married last name. <laughs> yeah. and But Perry is my legal last name. And Mary is your chosen or, in the dominican well of the dominican nuns not sisters nuns the tradition is that everyone has some form of mary in their name okay it might be catherine marie marie catherine miriam catherine some form of mary in their name i think it goes back to the french probably so um any dominican nun you meet they'll have mary in their name somehow and every Mary and variation thereof is indicating the mother of the Christ? blessed mother, the blessed, blessed mother. mother. Yeah. Okay. yeah. So that's our tradition. And I don't know if the active Dominican sisters do that also. Uh, I'm not still not clear on that. Cause I know that there'll be some, and she's just sister Catherine, but sometimes when they get their name officially, it's there. They just don't use it. Okay. Yeah. But we and use it. Active versus contemplative. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay, active apostolic, like the Nashville Dominicans, the Sisters of Mary Mother, the Eucharist, the Caldwell Dominican Sisters, Mission of San Jose, the ones who have active ministry. And I belong to the branch that is fully contemplative. The nuns of the Order of Preachers, we're St. Dominic's firstborn, 10 years before the friars. We don't let them forget that. wait do the um contemplative and the active nuns do you guys have like softball tournaments no no (laughs) that's a good idea (laughs) we actually don't have that much contact with them oh yeah occasionally but not that much more with the friars more with the friars that's interesting so you go um your order is in communication so you're working together with the friars or you're adding to their ministry uh, well, actually, we're, uh, we're just a very strange order because, in many ways, St. Dominic intended from the very beginning that the nuns, now there was no such thing as active apostolic sisters back then, you know, in the 1200s, but the nuns in their mission of prayer and the friars in their apostolic mission work together as one order. So we are all of the order of preachers, except our... Uh, expression of that is is different theirs is more to go out and ours is more intercessory um so we're one order we're not two different orders and what's what do you provide or what is the 
what you what you bring to the friars. It sounds like it's it's kind of a marriage in a way. It, it, it's a marriage in terms of mission. So yeah. the Order of Preachers was founded uh, for the preaching of, God, of the gospel for the salvation of souls. And there's different ways of approaching that. And it's not that we were founded to pray for the friars. Um, it, that's just an outreach of it. We're, we, we're, we were, St. Dominic brought us together to be free for God alone. But in that, to because of a great love for God, if you have a great love, you want the, you, it pours out and you want others to experience that. And so we're kind of like the hidden part of the mission of praying for the salvation of souls, praying for the mission of the order, praying for people in, in need, whatever that means. Um, we try not to, we're, we're the ones that God calls, and it's very humbling because I always say we're just ordinary. Like Esther, we're called to be come, come before the king and and intercede for our people whatever that means and we don't try to like think too much about it we just know that's where god wants us to be yeah and it's very humbling it's very humbling for people to ask you to pray for them and say we trust your prayers or the lord heard your prayers because we don't know it like we don't experience it you know it's very very humbling but there's just this interior knowledge this is where god wants me mm. and so Okay, I'll be there for him. Yeah. You know, it's very simple in many ways. Just hard to explain. <laughs> well, y yeah, especially to I guess Americans. Uh, yeah. Or at least to modern peoples. Uh, yeah, because it doesn't look like we do anything useful, and we're not supposed to be useful. Yeah. <laughs> in but some you're, ways, you're not <laughs> lazy or disconnected, either. Like the usefulness. No. The non-productivity is not the same as just checking out. Exactly, exactly. You know, the, the monastic tradition, like Benedictine, is that you go away from the world, you run away from the world, right? The fuga mundi. The Dominican approach to monastic life is more you go away in order to touch the heart of the world so that you're going away to be present too. It's a little different approach. Um, we need that separation in order be, to be more fully free for God and to be present to God, but it isn't just for our own sake because we just want to be away from everybody. It really comes out of a great love. And that's St. Dominic was like that. He would spend his days preaching and his nights in, in prayer. And um, the friars at Santa Sabina in Rome, you can still go up and look at the little window. They would see him all night long crying and uh, moved by the sufferings of people, spiritual suffering, moral suffering, physical suffering, and interceding for them before the Lord. And um, all night long in church, and then he'd fall asleep um, in church. And um, that's sort of like, that's the aspect of the order preacher's vocation that the nuns embody more. Not that, well, some monasteries, um, in the United States, many of our monasteries have the tradition of perpetual adoration, and uh, some monasteries are able to cover it every night where the sister is present all the time. And some monasteries like ours, it's until about 10 or so, mm, depends, and then sometimes the sister starts at 3 or 4, just because we don't have enough sisters. But that's what we strive for, yeah. that someone oh. is there all night. How big is your order? Um, my mo Okay, so I am from the Dominican Monastery of Our Lady of the Rosary in Summit, New Jersey, and I entered there 
It's going to be 32 years. Oh. And this monastery is in South Bronx, New York, Hunts Point, like the worst part of New York. And I think Manhattan's the worst part now. But anyway, and the sisters here uh, elected me, actually officially postulated me to be prioress. Um, and so I had to go to the Holy See because our monasteries are autonomous. So I am now here at the Bronx as their priors for three years. Okay. How so long is that different. appointment? Like a four three year years? Term, three year term. Three years. I've done six months. I'm not counting, but I've done six months. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> and what, what are your responsibilities as a prioress? A prioress on the superior of the house. So it's kind of a combination. Um, St. Dominic, it's not like an abbess. She, he wants the priors or the prior to be first among equals. So that's why you're never in office forever. Um, and so you're, I'm there as a sister, but I have a motherly role, but more of a sisterly role. And um, you, she's not like the absolute. I mean, I have real authority, but the chapter of the sisters has real authority. The council has real authority. And it's, it's in many ways bring, trying to bring out from the community how the community best wants to live the life according to our rules, our way of life. Um, so the priors doesn't actually make a lot of the big decisions. It's the chapter. Okay. And that's not always efficient, but it's really good. Okay, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you, I guess you, in, not enforce, but enact the decisions and then help yeah, in many ways, the adjustments. Yeah. yeah, yeah, many ways. And there's lots like little things that I have to give permissions for. But in reality, they're not that much different than people who work. There's a lot of things when you're working, you have to get permissions and okays for. You just don't even think about it, right? Yeah. Uh, in a community, it's sort of the same way. Um, or else you have chaos. Because we're supposed to be trying to live more and more in one heart and one mind, which is an ongoing forever thing and to become more one and so you just need that aspect of it to try to for the community so that you're not living individual lives we're not 14 women living individual lives in a monastery we're 14 women trying to live in a harmon harmonious uh unity hmm. um saint augustine we live the rule of saint augustine and he talks about it as, I love this, being an archetype of the Trinity. So the Trinity is a unity. It's a tr Trinity and unity. And we are striving to try to imitate and witness to the love of the triune God. Of course, we never get there because we're not God. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, and when you think of it, like this monastery um, has sisters from... Um, two from Italy, I'm American, uh, one from Colombia, one from the Philippines, one from Trinidad. Um, I think the others are American. So we have all these backgrounds that we come from as well, that we bring to the monastic life. And, and that doesn't always work. <laughs> you have to... th that's a lot of <laughs> negotiation. Yes, exactly. <laughs> yeah. And are people, are, are the nuns placed in there or do they uh, apply to be oh, placed you place? go okay the way our most monastic traditions are and that's why our monasteries are autonomous is that we believe that god calls you to a particular monastery 
He's calling you to a particular group of people to live out your salvation and flourish as a human being and become a saint in this particular group of sisters. And sometimes on a human level, it doesn't always make sense. Like, why here? You know, uh, we have one sister from New Jersey and her family said, well, why didn't you enter the monastery in New Jersey? Why did you enter New York? And she said, I just felt called there. And you can't always explain it. Yeah. Um, so I love being here. I love the sisters, but I'm very aware that my monastery is the monastery in New Jersey. Oh, okay. Um, you know, that's, that's, that's my monastery that God called me to. That's my community. Now, if he calls me here permanently, I'll know that when the time comes. Okay. But I'm so, not thinking about it right now. <laughs> except the prioress, everybody's there for life. Unless well, usually the prioress is here for life too. So this was okay. ha this can happen. It doesn't happen that often, but the community had sort of a lacuna in terms of of sisters who could take on leadership. And they had a two that were kind of back and forth thing. They were tired, and the community felt that maybe if they asked for someone from another monastery, it might help give it a new boost if that's the word yeah. um because it's a rather it's an older community uh we have a novice um everybody is there's nobody senile or whatever everybody's totally on board here but it's an older community and so and then it's not well known anymore in new york like it used to be um at one time this was quite well known monastery but it's in the bronx so okay. people don't think of the bronx and they think of the Bronx of the 1970s and 80s, and the area's changed a lot, really changed a lot. Okay. For the good. What, you know? what happens, like, is there a retirement program for nuns? Like when? No, you just keep going until... Okay. Sometimes, sometimes we try to take care of our sisters as long as we can. Sometimes if they need more care than we can give them, then we try to find a religious community that has a good, you know, infirmary nursing that can care for them. Um but you just try to live like we have two sisters that are older and they're not at all the divine offices. They can't do it. It's too much for them, but they come to whatever they want. And, you know, I, they, they'll come to me sometime and I'm so sorry. I just can't do it. And I've said, sister, please. No, 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 no. Uh, you do what you can, you know? And, um, so they're not retired, but they're not, they don't have full responsibilities, yeah. but their main reason why they came here, which is to, be a lot for a life of prayer they're still 100 percent doing that yeah you know and is there like a pr pilgrimage part of being a nun like where you go on a walk or something no no yeah. <laughs> you walk in the door <laughs> <laughs> it's a pilgrimage in the sense that you come to the monastery after a period of discernment and you enter but really, your discernment, I don't even like the word discernment, maybe because I'm Dominican, your discernment, your testing, the vocation, really doesn't start till you actually enter and you live the life. Before that, um, it's something basically in your head that you think it's a certain way. And it's really when you enter the monastery, then you know what you think God is calling you to, what you think the life is, you're testing that. And that's really the better word. And the community is testing you too. It's mutual. Yeah. Um, How and long so, is that generally, or is it? It's now nine years. The Holy See brought that up to nine years. And it, it was used to be about six, five okay. to six. Why did they extend? Which I think was needed. I think it was needed. Yeah. What's the reasoning, and 
Why do you think that um, was a good They choice? didn't exactly give a reason, but I do know that I heard, and I remember seeing statistics. I was really thrown. All over the world, there were a lot of um, men and women in active life and contemplative life, but a lot in contemplative life, within five years after their final vows, asking for dispensation. So they just felt we need to just maybe give this more time. And I think it was, I think it's wise. I know a lot of women, especially, are like grousing about it and they don't like it. But why? The life doesn't really change from the time you enter to solemn profession and after you're still living the same kind of life you might have different responsibilities but the essentials of the life are same are the same it's really no different from the day you enter to you know so um but those of us who have i was in formation for 12 years and i could see that women needed more time they just do yeah you know so back to dominic saint dominic saint dominic yeah yeah uh, what does it take to establish an order? And are they still established? Is it a rare thing? No, it, does it never no there's again? orders are still being founded. Um, I, I, I know there's some new norms. I think the Holy See has slowed some of this down, maybe for the best. Um, you're supposed to have a really good reason for starting something. And sometimes you sometimes one is not wondering, well, what's the real purpose of this new community being founded? Sometimes that takes time. You know, St. Dominic really didn't intend to found an order. It kind of just happened out of the need of the time. And um, I'm not saying this because I'm a Dominican. Outside the order, people will say it. he really was a genius because he took what already was established and it's how he brought it together for the purpose of the order and within he died five years after the order was founded and the order is essentially the same we've never had a division thank you lord we just celebrated our 800th anniversary a couple of years ago we've never had a division the the essential structures of government are the same as they were 800 years ago um he he put in things that at the time were um considered very uh not strange, but just really new. I think it's more the form of government, but it's worked for the order. It's kept the order alive and fresh and being able to respond to the needs of the time. Yeah. Um, so it's a it's always a tension in the order between the monastic life of contemplation that the order is called to, but then the mission of the order of preaching the gospel and keeping that tension. And that tension has to be there. Um, so that it can fulfill its purpose. Um, and then there's always a change in, uh, like the master of the order all the way down, provincials, priors, prioresses. Um, no one's in for life. No one's in for long periods of time. And it actually, it helps the order. A circulation of the elites. As it's... <laughs> or something. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, it is. So he... He um, he's not like we always joke. You're not going to find Saint Dominic in the backyard in the birth bath, bird bath, like Saint Francis. <laughs> okay, he he doesn't have an icon there. He's no. not well known in most parts of the world. He doesn't capture your imagination like Saint Francis, even though they were contemporaries, and they were doing the same thing, sort of at the same time, a little differently. 
but he hasn't captured people's imagination. He sort of stays in the background and he wants the order and the mission of the order to come forward. And so, and there's very few writings that we have of his. Um, We have a letter he wrote to the nuns and we know sections of the the original constitutions were from him, but we don't have much written, written from him. What's his story then? Did he, where, where did he arise from? Um, St. Dominic was born in about 1170 in uh, Caluruega, Spain, which is about an hour, maybe an hour and a half drive north from Madrid. Um, when he was a young man, he moved to Osma, I think. I should know this by heart. Do you know, was I he know this. rich, poor family? Uh, the family was a noble family, but it wasn't okay. exactly rich. Um, he had another brother who's also a priest. Um, and then his younger brother, Manes, joined him in the order. They say he has a sister, but nobody knows her name is because who cares, right? She's just a sister. <laughs> well, yeah, but... And his the... mother is considered saint, a saint also. Okay, but the, the family name ended if all the brothers go into the order, right? Yeah, I guess so. I guess huh. they did. Yeah, I didn't think about that. Yeah, that's the first time I've ever thought about that. So in Caluruega, his mother and father are buried. And in Spain, they're considered saints. And in the order, blessed uh, Jane, his mother, is considered a saint. We don't celebrate his father for some reason. Um, Or his sister, so it evens out. Yeah, sister, nobody knows who she is. Or his other brother, Peter, who is a diocesan priest. I don't even know where he's buried. I'm sure someone knows. and then he was uh, a canon in the cathedral at Osma, which is like a religious, something we don't really have in the United States, canons, but they're, they're sort of like monks, but they're not. And their vocation is to give the liturgical life in the cathedral, if that's the way I can explain it. Uh, and Overseeing the... The prayer life, if you want to say, the cathedral. Okay. It's the only way I can explain it. Okay. I'm never clear on canons, so if you know more okay. than I do on that, okay, I'd be grateful. Yeah. I like people explain it to me, but I don't quite, you know. It's slippery one. Um, and he was asked, I mean, his prior was asked to go on a diplomatic mission to Denmark to bring back the, I think she was a princess, the future wife of the king of Spain, and he took Dominic with him. And they traveled through France. And when he they were there in an inn, St. Dominic encountered people who belonged to the Cathar heresy. Um, they had a belief in the two gods, a dualism. God of, the god of material matter was bad. The god of uh, spirit was good. And he, the story goes that he spent the whole night talking to this innkeeper, reasoning with him, trying to teach him the truth and at the end the innkeeper converted and then saint dominic went on his way they found out the princess had died so they kind of came come back and then they met the cistercian monks who were assigned by the pope to southern spain to deal with this heresy and these people were people who it was kind of a weird i mean it was a weird thing but anyway um in some ways they live very austerely and in some ways they followed the gospel, but in other ways they just had this weird religion. And St. Dominic realized that if they were going to help convert these people uh, who had monastery convents, they had a whole, they had whole towns in Southern, Southern France. Um, 
that they had to, if you want to say, live like they were living uh, in order to be considered authentic. And so St. Dominic and his bishops stayed. They started just living from divine providence day to day, tramping the roads. And he didn't have great success. Um, that's when we were founded, the first women converts. And they were living like a monastic life. And he knew he had to find something similar for them now that they were Catholic. And so this little monastery in the middle of nowhere, it's still the middle of nowhere in southern France. Hmm. Uh, that's when the first nuns came together. And he'd have someone join him for a while, but that person would leave. The whole area was um, having wars. It was not an easy time in France. And then eventually, about 10 years later, men started to join him, mostly either clerics or what I mean by older men in their 20s. They were not, they were men who were educated. They were men who were lawyers. Um, so it's a very different thing than St. Saint, Saint Francis. And they started coming together in Toulouse. And then when the order was approved by the Pope, it was still small. And he sent them out all over Europe, two by two, um, to the universities to learn and also to preach. And the famous phrase he said, because people are like, your community is so small. Why are you doing this? And he said, seed that is hoarded will rot. So mm -hmm. he's, and then he used to say, I know what I am doing. <laughs> so huh. there were times when he didn't listen to the friars and this was one of them. <laughs> huh. And he sent them out all over, all over Europe and wherever they were sent, they really responded to the needs of the day. Okay. And, and people would, um, they just grew. The friars grew and the nuns grew very quickly those first hundred years. And what's the, um, the seed or the algorithm or the, the, the truth that they were preaching? Like what, the essence, the gospel? Um, that, that Christ is the first truth okay. and, and, you know, um, the incarnation, Christ came to save us. The word of God became man to save us. So it's really, you know, Veritas, truth is the motto of the order. And that the first truth is God himself. It's Christ himself. And that, um, you know, Dominicans are known. We're not, how do I explain this? Sometimes people think Dominicans are really like heady and nerdy. Well, they are that. But anyway, uh, <laughs> that, but sending them out to study is because you can't love what you don't know, which I think Aristotle said, and to be able to bring this truth to others in a way that is, um, uh, it's both talking to people's minds and hearts. Uh, it's not something based just on emotion, but on the truth. So it's a little different. It's, it's, um, it's a different, little bit different kind of preaching than Franciscan preaching. Franciscan preaching is more exhortatory, more, uh, it's just a little bit different. And it's always been this difference. And Dominican preaching is, is more, the word isn't catechetical. Um, hmm. And I, I'm not trying to use the word intellectual. That's the wrong word. Um, well, how about if you describe it as like a culture, like what, what what's the culture, the attitude or the, like the culture of this order? Like do, when of you guys Dominican get together, order. a lot of arguing, a lot of PowerPoint <laughs> well, presentations. No, and, no, no, no. I mean, the order itself has a very strong sense of common life, fraternal life, and that the preaching comes out of the community. It comes out of the lived experience of the community. Hmm. Um, and that God 
can be, God is a mystery, but God can be known in part. I mean, that's why we have great saints like St. Thomas Aquinas, always searching for God, to know God more, to know God more, to know the truth of God, to know who God is. And that then in turn, we know also who we are and what God wants of us. Um, that the truth is not some mysterious thing that God is trying to create. Uh, what's the word I want? Um, like he's trying to trip us up to see if we can play the game. You know, it's not that at all. God is lovable, knowable, and he wants us to know and love him. But we have to learn the language, if you want to say, of how to know and love God. Um, and it's sometimes Dominicans get caught up in the in that. But it's really about all this knowledge is really for God, to be able to know God, to love God. It's yeah. not just knowledge for knowledge's sake, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I've always said this, and I know there's a there's there's uh there's always exceptions, but as a whole, my experience in the Dominican order, and I will have entered 32 years on Friday. So my experience has been that as a whole, Dominicans don't take themselves too seriously. Um, there's a lot of lightheartedness. Uh, there's a lot of mm. just even their preaching, not taking it seriously. They tried to take God seriously and bringing others to God and the truth of God and that God is, is someone we want to know and love more than anything else. He's our great gift. And that's been my experience as, as a whole. Um, and there's a book that came out about 15 years ago. Do I have it here? But I have it here. Oh shucks, I must have put it away. Too bad. Great advertising. Anyway, um, Father. Um, oh gosh, I just lost his name when I turned around. It's called The New Wine of Dominican Spirituality. It's by an Irish Dominican friar. And three of the chapters were actually talks he gave to the nuns. And his whole thing is that in the early days of the order. The friars in particular were known, it's called the new wine. They would be known for their being as though they were drunk because mm -hmm. they were so caught up in the joy of conversion, the joy of God, that people would think that they were drunk. They were drunk because they were just so full of joy. Yeah. And so they weren't, but he just uses, he shows all this, that we weren't these serious, like, like, um, uh, movies will make Dominicans be like they're out to kill everybody and send them to the, uh, you know, the Inquisition and yeah, put okay. them at the stake and all that stuff. That's not Dominican at all. It's a character. It comes from Protestantism. Uh, um, it's just the opposite. It's a great yeah. book. It's back in print. It was out of print for a little bit. Um, Bloomsbury, Bloomsbury's printed it. Uh, forget the other print. Um, uh, anyway, and it, it just shows this whole thing that I have experienced in the order is characteristic of a particular kind of joy. Okay. Do you know when nuns and monks and friars started? Because if you, if you just imagining Roman, the fall of the Roman empire and then the mm -hmm. rise of the Christian empire, like at what point did, was there carryover? Was it spontaneous? Like when did the, you don't think well, of a the nun and is, Roman times right? um the tradition is that after constantine when christianity was okay um then the whole being martyred kind of wasn't there and the whole idea of witnessing to the faith and so you would have men especially 
but you also had women rushing out to the desert to live a life of challenge of life, if you want to say, to show that they give all to God. Okay. That this need to give everything to God. And that's, it's essentially the same thing, right? And so they would go out into the desert and just live this extreme life um, to show that God is enough. God is everything. And that people would be um, attracted to this and they would go out and it would be like, Abba, give me your word of the Lord, you know, and they were known for their wisdom and they lived kind of crazy too. I mean, let's just face it. Some of it was crazy, um, but that's okay. And, and then you had the, you had some women going out there and doing that too. But then you had some of the Roman women who would live a life that they weren't being married, they wouldn't get married, they were consecrated to God. So you call those maybe the first nuns. And then the kind of like kind of morphed together this this promise of virginity in the world and monastic mm. life. And then virginity in the world kind of disappeared until after Vatican II. And now women can make can be consecrated to be virgins in the world. They're not nuns, they have jobs, they have they don't wear habits, but they're consecrated. Um, mm. the funny thing is I've heard some of them want to live in community. So here we go again. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know, yeah. It's yeah. kind of the nature of it, right. To live with people who are like-minded. Um, so that's really, it's comes from this whole desire of witnessing to God and to give him everything, sell all you have and follow me. Yeah. Um, yeah. Is that, is that, I'm hearing myself. I think I can edit it out later, but, um, so that desire to be a sign of God's love by dedicating oneself wholly to the life of, you know, service or contemplation, where does that find its root in the Bible or in Christianity? Or is that a particularly Christian thing? I don't see that in Judaism. Maybe I No, do. no, you won't. No, you won't see in Judaism. It so really it comes, comes from the out example of, of Christ. Yeah, following Christ, who is poor and chaste and had no place to lay his head and gave his life to the Father for us, gave everything. So that's really what it is. It's um, it's this desire, in some small, tiny way, um, to try to imitate him and his off offering to the Father. Um yeah. It sounds kind of pathetic. You're just this little human being and you're trying to be like Jesus. But yeah, he puts that in your heart. <laughs> well, I'm sure that over time, your order and various other orders have uh, instituted different programs to filter out people who are doing this for ego or doing this for the wrong reasons, right? It doesn't take long. <laughs> just living in community. And we have saints like in the art order. We have saints who are mystics. Who were you can be crazy and be a saint, you know what I mean? Um, mm. and uh, we had saints who lived extreme lives of penance, um, who were mystics, who probably were not easy to live with. Let's just say mm. that, you know. Okay. Um, you know, you have Saint Rose of Lima, who's extreme penances, you have Saint Dominic had extreme penances. I remember I was a novice, no, I was a postulant, so I just entered, and in the refectory, we were listening to some lectures given by one of the friars and they were not new lectures. They were like from the sixties. Um, and he was talking about St. Dominic's penitential life. Somehow I didn't remember this at all reading about this part. And I was like, what am I doing in this order? There's no way I can imitate this guy. I didn't even want this type of life of extreme penances. 
then I had to learn that, you know, God gives you what he wants from you. You're not saying okay. Dominic, <laughs> you know, what were his so, penances? Well, I mean, he used to um, give himself the discipline and have other brothers give it to him till he was, he was bleeding. He barely ate. He would be up all night in prayer and it came from a great love for God and a great love for people. It yeah. didn't, it wasn't just, I want to make, be miserable. He wasn't miserable. Then, and that's the one thing that over and over in the early documents of the order, St. Dominic was always joyful. The friars always knew they could talk to him. He was always showing his care for the friars, his care for the nuns. Even when he corrected them, they always said they felt like they were given a gift the way he did it. He was so, his love for them. And they, they always wanted to be with him, you know? So hmm. it wasn't something that turned people off. Um it's intense. He was intense. Yeah. But that's why he's St. Dominic and I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, about two months ago, we had in the order an international meeting. Okay, so we're all um, independent monasteries, but we're all connected in what's called a federation or an association. We belong to association. So the order had a meeting of the presidents of um, all over the world. There's, uh 21 of us, I'm president of our association in Rome. And we, this has been put off for two years because of COVID. And, um, <laughs> excuse me, sorry, that's my post-COVID. And where was I going with this? Oh, so I had to stay, myself and another American nun went a day early because of the jet lag. And we thought we could stay at this convent we were all staying at. It's like, um, you know, in Rome, they're all like hostels type thing. Well, for some reason we couldn't stay a day early. So the friars put us up at Santa Sabina, which is the headquarters of the order in Rome. It's the oldest church in Rome. And they don't really have much for sisters to stay, plus they're renovating. So they had us up in these two little like attic rooms, like probably the oldest part of the priory, way up at the church. And I was like, this was just amazing experience. So we had to go down to the basilica at night. You know, they give you the keys to go everywhere it's closed. It's your church. It's your basilica because you're a Dominican, right? And you know where St. Dominic used to pray. And I was exhausted because of, you know, jet lag. And I'm going to sleep at night and I'm saying, I can't believe it. I am staying in the place where St. Dominic used to live and to pray. He used to spend all his night in that basilica and I'm sleeping like a baby. <laughs> you know, I'm not down there praying like he was. I'm just out, gone. <laughs> so I couldn't even imitate him and going in the basilica and praying. At night. <laughs> how did he? Tired. How and did I, he end up in Rome? Hmm. How did? Uh, how did say, he end up in Rome? Yeah. Um, because he had to keep going to Rome to get approval for the order because there was no other order that was founded like this. They had to kind of make up this because it doesn't sound extraordinary to us, but at the time become an order of preachers meant we are going to preach like bishops, but we're not bishops. Oh, so the okay. bishop is the one who has the office of preaching the gospel. He has the, we're just so used to every priest preaching every day. Right. But the office of preaching belongs to the bishop. And the friars of the order of preachers have that same office as friars of the order of preachers. And the Pope trusted St. Dominic, but they had to figure out ways to say all this. So he, had, he used to walk to Rome from France, and, and then he was called to reform the nuns in Rome. So there's 
three monasteries came together and became nuns of the order of preachers. And um, that monastery is still in existence, not in the same place. Um, so he was in Rome a lot. And because of that, on business. <laughs> okay. Yeah. He died in uh, Bologna, northern Italy. How did he die? Is that canon? How did he die? Father, like by just old age or? No, no, he was only 51. Okay. He got some kind of, I don't know, illness, virus or something. And, you know, he wasn't exactly, um, you know, when you eat an egg and a half a piece of fish a day, you're not exactly yeah. like, you know. <laughs> and that was the average age for people back then, between 50, 55. Yeah. So, yeah, it's hard to believe I'm older than St. Dominic was when he died. It's like, whoa. Yeah, look at it. <laughs> no, yeah, yeah. <laughs> huh. What was yeah. your um, trajectory then? Uh, what was your earliest uh, memory of something was calling you in this direction? Um, okay, well, I am one of those um, strange people that uh, my, come from a Catholic family, um, I went to a Catholic school taught by sisters who were the habit. Um, they were like the coolest. My mother said they didn't have enough discipline. Um, they were just cool. They were fun. It was a small Catholic school. It was out in the country. Um, it was like one step up from homeschooling. So it's called seventies and eighties. And I felt called from the time I was young to belong totally to Jesus. And I knew that meant a nun. What else would it mean? Right. However, having said that, it doesn't mean that I was like just part of me really wanted it. And as I became a teenager, the other part of me didn't want it. And I tried to fight it and I tried to uh, ignore it and all that. And, you know, a little bit of dating, not much worked. Um, but I really it was a very strong call. I knew I had to follow it. And I also didn't want to enter the sisters who taught me in school because, you know, you know them kind of thing. And I kept looking into other orders. So this is the 80s. This is not Internet. OK, this is okay. you write to them. You get a little yeah. brochure done on a copier. OK, so keep that in mind. And I realized that I really was supposed to enter that community of sisters. And they're like my second family. I love them dearly. I was with them for two years and I was absolutely miserable because mm. I was in the wrong place. And I left, knowing I had a vocation, I just didn't know where. And I thought I wanted to teach. I really always said I wanted to teach. And I had found out about the Nashville Dominicans, who at the time, they were not as well known as they are now. And I visited them, and I had one of the happiest weeks of my life. However, I'm at the mother house, and there's, you know, 200 sisters. And I knew they went on mission most of the time. And I said, this only lasts a year. This isn't the reality. I'm 22 years old, every 21 at the time. And um, I was working. I went to college part-time only because I didn't want to get a debt until I knew what I was doing with myself. That's as far as I got. But anyway, um, and then I was talking to the novice ministers and I just blurted it out. And I said, well, I'm thinking of looking into contemplative life. And then I said to myself, why did I say that, you know? And she said, oh, well, you should look into the monastery at Summit. And you know how sometimes you have no idea what people are talking about, so you agree with them? <laughs> you yeah. go, oh, yeah, okay, yeah. Yeah. Know what she's talking about. So I went home, and I had another friend who was discerning. She was discerning contemplative life. And I had my application, but there was something in me, like, I can't do this. 
And I would say, if I was living somewhere where nobody knew me and they didn't know my personality, I would go look at a monastery because then people would say, oh, you're not the type, you know? So then they're like, well, why don't you just write to some monasteries? And she had gotten the booklet from the Monasterian Summit and said to me, you should look into this community. I thought of you, but I had forgotten what the novice mistress had said at Nashville. So I wrote, okay, I'm from Massachusetts. Not that Massachusetts is a great place, but I'm from Massachusetts in the country. And New Jersey was like the bottom of my list of places I would ever want to go. <laughs> Sorry, people from New Jersey. I love you. It's my, my adopted state. But anyway, and I went to visit the community and I can't say like, oh, everything was wonderful. It wasn't that at all. But they offered me, we have a, a live-in experience. And I think, well, I can't see why not. I couldn't think of a reason why not. So I accepted it. I was there for two weeks. It was the middle of the summer. This is 1990. At the time, we had no fans. We had air conditioning in the choir and the community room. That was it. And New Jersey in the summer is bad. Okay. So I didn't get much sleep. I was miserable from the heat. And I left still not knowing um, what God wanted. Um, but then when I left, I was at work, I was working as a pharmacy tech and I would say, oh, the sisters are looking at my watch. The sisters are at prayers now. The sisters are doing this now. This is, did this for a month. They said, are you going to spend the rest of your time doing this? Are you actually going to go do the stuff that you're thinking about? Yeah. And I couldn't even face um, saying yes to entering. That was just way too much. And I said, well, I can at least ask to apply. That's as far as I could get. So this was August. I asked to apply. My sister was getting married, so I had to put some. I had to wait a little bit. By the time I entered, which was on Epiphany, so that's six about six months. By the time from asking to apply to entering, and this is why I always tell people, God doesn't ask some big yes. He just asks little yeses most of the time. I was so happy. I was so excited about entering. I was so clear this is my vocation. And if you had told me in August that that's what I was be experiencing, I would have said, you're crazy, you know, yeah. but the Lord gave me that grace to really see that this is what he wanted for me, what I wanted, you know, and that's what my spiritual director had said, spend time in prayer and ask yourself, what do you truly want? And I said, no, 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 I just want what God wants. And he said, I know that, but what do you truly want? And that's when I started to see. I'd like to teach, maybe I want to teach, but deep, deep down, I just want to belong to God and praise God and love God um, and be there for his people and let him figure the rest out. Hmm. And that's how that came to live monastic life and be a Dominican. And I didn't want to be out there. So that's why I'm on YouTube right now. <laughs> you know, it was more the sense that I'm called to be behind the scenes. Um, okay. And I never, I think it's a huge grace because I had a hard time in formation. I had a lot of crises, but I Was never formation once. Formation specifically? Just postulancy, like, novitiate, first vows. Those are a bunch of other words that I don't know the meaning <laughs> of. <laughs> okay, okay. <laughs> I, I will tell you in a minute, but I never doubted. There were times I didn't want it, but I never doubted. Okay. Uh, and I knew that if I said, I'm getting out of here and I want no, I knew that was my choice. And that really, I was turning my back on something that God was giving me. Okay. Which is a little different, right? Than saying, you know. So um, in uh, monastic jargon, which is most religious life, you have what's called aspirancy. 
which is now about a year when you're out of the monastery, you're aspiring to the life, you're learning more about the life, maybe having experiences of the life in July in the heat and humidity, you know. Um, and then when you're accept, you apply to enter. Again, everything's always mutual. The community and you are mutually discerning each other. It's not one way. Sometimes a community will say no, and a young woman uh, will not understand why. Um, and they get angry at the community. And I can assure you, having been novice misters, a community never does that lightly. Never, never, never. And all the way through, the community is saying, what's the best, what's the ultimate good for this young woman? Can she flourish in this life from what we're seeing? Or is there something that just doesn't seem right? And we maybe can't put our finger on it, but yeah. we just have a sense this isn't the place for her. But it's not, the community doesn't do that lightly. And it's usually yeah. the community, not just one or two sisters. Yeah. Just like a collective sense. Well, something's not right here, you know. Um, hmm. And then um, you enter with postulancy, which is from the Latin word to ask. And that's a year. And you're not a sister. And that's why you don't wear the habit. Um, most communities have like a jumper or a skirt or a little veil or something ugly. No. <laughs> and you are living the life gradually, taking it on more and more having classes, more and more living the life, experiencing it. And there's a lot of latitude given for a young woman. So, um, for example, when I entered the monastery, we were getting up at five of five. And at the time in my life, I needed a lot of sleep. And I lost two hours of sleep just by entering. And I was a first-year novice. And I was talking to my novice mistress. We were doing something. And I just started crying. And she said, are you upset about something? And I just went, I'm just so tired. And the crying was coming out of being tired. I wasn't really having a crisis at that point. And so from then on, she let me sleep in a little later for about six months to give me a little latitude, more adjustment. So yeah. that time of postulancy is like that. Some communities will have it where there's specific things that postulants don't do or, or do because it's a different time. It's an adjustment. And then again, you petition and the community votes on you to receive the habit, start your novitiate. And that's really the formal beginning of discerning, testing your vocation. And you receive the habit because you, well, you can, the community can also opt not to give you the habit until in Dominican monasteries, until profession. But you're also becoming a member of the community. You're not vowed, but you're becoming a member of the community. And starting to look like the community helps you a lot. <laughs> you know, yeah. um, there's something about that. It helps you become part of that community. Um, and then after two years, again, community decides, you decide, and you're accepted for vows. And it's three years, and then one year at a time for two or three more years, depending how many years you need to make up that nine years. And then you make your solemn profession. Please God till death. Hmm. So that's the idea. <laughs> Sometimes it doesn't happen, but that's the idea. <laughs> you mentioned that you had crises during various stages. Um, yeah. We don't have to get into those specifically, but I'm, I'm assuming that the process does break you and remold you. It's not breaking it's yeah. not a breaking. It's more of you coming to um, a greater self-knowledge of who you are and accepting who you are and really becoming more truly who you are and flourishing in the truth of who you are. That all of us 
and by the way, it happens all their life, but all of us bring a sort of veneer and we kind of have to have that to navigate life, right? I mean, there's a certain amount of that, especially if you're out in the world working. Yeah. Um, but in the, in the monastic life, you can't have that veneer. You really have to totally be open to God and to the community. And yeah. so okay. you learn very uncomfortable truths about yourself that maybe you fight and you don't like. Um, I remember, I don't mind sharing. It's been so long ago. I remember my novice mister saying to me, you have a problem with authority. I said, no, I don't. I always considered myself a very obedient person. As we begin to talk, I really saw I do have a problem with authority. Okay. <laughs> Probably still do. <laughs> you know? Why is, why is having a problem with authority a problem? Like theologically, um, I, I understand like there's, there's different layers, like, like being in communion with people, you would have to give that up. But is that a part of the doctrine of being accepting to authority or? Excuse me. Because, um, okay. The traditional vows, most communities make the traditional vows of poverty, chastity, and obedience. Most. Okay. okay. Cause those are, those are the, uh, the counsels to be poor, chaste and, um, obedient as Christ was. Those are the three essentials. Now, some other orders have others. Now, I'm a Dominican, and we're part of the older orders, and many of the older orders, Benedictine, Cistercian, they didn't have, they didn't explicitly say those three. They would say obedience, conversion of life, conversion of manners. But I'm a Dominican, and it's even worse. We only say obedience. Okay. Oh, okay. <laughs> when we're saying obedient, we make profession and promise obedience to a whole way of life according to our constitution, to these, this person, the superior, but it's according to our constitution. So part of that is chastity, poverty, but it's a whole way of life that we're becoming obedient to because Christ was obedient to the father to death. And so if you have a problem with authority and you can't, you're always fighting it, then on a theological level, can you really live a life of obedience? Okay. Because like, you're not giving up, and we're not Jesuits, I hate to say that, but we're not giving up our, our, our intellect. So you're, I could say to a sister, I want you to do such and such, or a sister Priors could say to me, and I could say, she's crazy. That's a stupid idea. And I might be right, but I also fully say as my superior, as one who stands before God, I totally embrace what you want okay. and I will do it, but I yeah. don't have to, I don't have to get rid of this idea. That's a crazy idea. The longer you're in religious life, actually, the harder obedience becomes because you're experienced. You have experiences. You have knowledge about things. Maybe you were a superior at one time. So mm -hmm. you come at it a little differently. So it can be harder and not easier. Whereas when you're new, you're like, yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> you know, but that's where the gift comes that you can. It might be a bigger struggle in one aspect, but you can also say yes because God has put you there as my superior and I promised him, I say, you know, yes, fully. You rarely get explicit um, obediences. It doesn't happen that often. Mm -hmm. But the community can be asked to do something and, you know, and it's a good idea, but you also don't like it. <laughs> you might just say, I don't like that idea at all. Yeah. Like, I don't <laughs> know, making shoes or... Fixing a bridge or something. Okay, yeah. Okay. <laughs> From now on, I, I have to think of something. I can't even think of anything. Uh, I don't know. I'll think of it. It's usually a small thing, and you're like, "Oh, it's so stupid." Okay. 
So you're, you pointed, you indicated something by bringing up the Jesuits where you still have autonomy of thought or opinion. The Jesuit tradition is that, and I, if a Jesuit sees this, they'll, they'll scream at me. But anyway, really, the Jesuit idea is that a full obedience is that you're even giving over, you're giving up your thought, you're independent on thought on that, that you're even going to change your way of thinking. That to be truly obedient means even to change my way of thinking about it. It's not the Dominican way. Okay. Dominicans are really into like, if, like uh, what, what I call it, um, letting, um, uh, the, res- the word isn't respect, the human person and that God created us this way and that you can retain independence of thought, but you are also totally willing to let go of that for the common good and for the good of obedience. Okay. Cause I and can then see down the that... road, then you don't say, I told you, so I knew it. You don't do that. <laughs> when, when everyone finds out it was the wrong thing to do, oh, okay. you don't go, I told you so. <laughs> okay. Yeah. You're even humble. at that. End. You try. You yeah. try. <laughs> yeah. Um, Cause I can see if, if you, um, human beings being human beings, we can, take anything and turn, you know, poppy into heroin, right? So even mm-hmm. virtues become toxic mm-hmm. drugs. So mm-hmm. when, when you're talking about, like, we can avoid chastity for the time being, like poverty, like as an idea, like you can start to think, well, should I not have any objects at all? Or, or what is my, rela- rather than investigating your relationship to property or to matter or to mm-hmm. the function of thing. You can really get into that or you can be a little loosey goosey on that. But even having the concept of of poverty, like what does that mean in your order? And are does every even individual nun have like a different relationship to what it means to be poor or in poverty? Or like how do you guys manifest and, and enact poverty? And maybe even okay. why? Um poverty and, is the one council in the church that um, there, there's like a big latitude on how that is understood. And a lot of people think it's this absolute as though poverty in itself is a good, it's not poverty is a bad thing. Mm. Uh, evangelical poverty is a good thing, but how that is expressed, yeah. is going to be different for Franciscans. It can be different for Benedictines, different for the sisters of life, different for Dominicans. So we follow the rule of St. Augustine, uh, which says um, that St. Augustine's ideal was that of the first uh, Christian community in Acts about holding all things in common. So that's a little different than giving up everything to be poor like the naked Christ. It's a little different. Um, St. Dominic wanted the friars to be mendicant and to beg for their daily bread. He did not want the nuns to be begging. He wanted the nuns. He worked. He was a astute businessman. He worked hard to um for them money was lands right and fields and uh he worked really hard to make sure the nuns were provided for of course then again you also have women who couldn't provide for themselves like now okay but so that they were not uh distracted by having to provide for themselves and not being able to give themselves over to the life god had called them to so if you're thinking all the time about how you're going to provide for the needs of a community of 30, 40 nuns, which was the norm back then, even 100, um, and you're not having, again, we come at it from an American perspective, which is fundraising. The Europeans have no sense of this, you know, hmm. they just, 
you're supposed to live off of whatever was given you 200 years ago, you know, it's different. Hmm. Um, so, um, he wanted a little differently for the nuns, however, and he also wanted the nuns to do work, manual work, um, and not just sit around and pray. <laughs> um, yeah. so it is a little differently. The funny thing is that in reality today, the nuns are probably as mendicant, if not more than the friars. Most mendicant? Dominican monasteries, Sorry. mendicant begging are just pro God providing through the goodness of people. Yeah. Um, <laughs> most monasteries, like most of our groceries, most of stuff come because people donate it. And it's amazing how hmm. we never know what, not we never know what we're going to eat. We never know what's going to come in the door and that we don't have more food poisoning. I was going to say more food poisoning, but I've never seen it. You know, the <laughs> fact that people can have a, uh, what do you call it? A, uh, I can't change a lot with COVID, right? They can have an event and they have all these trays of pasta, whatever, the Knights of Columbus, they have all this lasagna and they have two that didn't get touched or one that got half touched and one that didn't, they bring it over to the monastery. That lasagna has been sitting out all day, right? Like sometime we should get food poisoning, but we never do because God provides. <laughs> hmm. Hmm. Um, he's always providing for us. He's always providing for us. And um, I've seen it here in this monastery, uh, which is in a very poor area. Um, we have two big major expenses that are coming up that we need to address. And we absolutely had not the money for this kind of thing. And that was one of my jobs. And then someone left, died and left us a huge legacy that will provide. So our steeple, which is rotting, um, needs to be addressed. And we're responsible for our sidewalks, which are a mess. Mm. And all we need is someone to sue us, you know, that kind of thing. So thanks to this, this person and God's providence, we'll be able to fix these kinds of things. Um, most normal families don't have to deal with sidewalks and steeples. <laughs> not steeples sidewalks it's depending steeples. on where you live and if yeah you're i know or not, but... <laughs> it's steeples right so anyway god always provides and why shouldn't he because we have given ourselves to him as his spouses and he's he's like i'll provide for you i'll care for you mm -hmm. and but also part of that means that we have to be responsible and live in a way that is simple and truly poor and not mm -hmm. and it's not easy today in this culture it's hard because um Things aren't meant to last. Things are meant to be disposable. Um, yeah. When I entered the monastery, my habits that were given to me, another sister had worn, and they were made in the 60s, and they lasted another 20 years. Now you get material that's pretty good, expensive, and it doesn't last beyond three or four years. Okay. So what do you do? Do you get expensive, expensive material so it will last, but you don't know until you wear it, or do you get cheap material because it's cheap and it's not really going to last long? How do you handle that? And today, that's a big problem hmm. uh, with things that you you want to live frugally. On the other yeah. hand, things aren't meant, they're not made, everything's meant to be disposable. Yeah. Which has been, you know, it's a different kind of approach to things. Yeah, it's got to have like, impact on the psychology of what your, what your life is about. It like does the, because your relationship to the world is changing because the world's relationship to you is exactly. changing. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Um, healthcare, 
Um, it used to be the doctor came in or you went to the doctor and they either charged you basic or whatever, but now most doctors can't do anything without insurance. Now you have to pay medical insurance. Um, you have to pay your, you know, property insurance. Those are all like massive expenses you have to do. Yeah. You can't get away. You can't get out of it now. Um, yeah. you have to have a fire suppression system that the town approves of. You have to have all these crazy things, right? Um, which you didn't have to have in the past. You just let the monastery burn down. <laughs> and then you go on a pilgrimage. You finally get your walk in. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. But anyway, so it's it's a it's a um, but the whole idea of poverty in terms of uh, ownership of things. Uh, the monastery owns it. By my solemn profession, I not only not own anything, I don't even have the right to own anything. And that can, it sounds like, oh, yeah, sure, but your community is providing. Yes, but, but I also have to put my trust that God will provide through the community. And it's happened where, through circumstances, sisters have found that they don't have a community anymore because the community closed. Community died. They have to go to another monastery. Yeah. And to say yes to the Lord, I no longer have the community I had but you always provide for me. It's, it's a little different. You know, the thing, the thing about things is just really the first level. It goes even deeper of being detached. Being in God's When you're a novice, you get a new habit. It's great. You have a new habit. You feel lovely. Then your habit gets worn out. You can't just decide, I want a new habit. You know, you have, you get a new habit when the prioress or the sister in charge of the habits thinks you need a new habit, hmm. but can I be detached and be free with whatever I'm given to wear. That's a little harder. What is uh, your monastery's relationship to your area? Is there a place for people to worship or is it just this building there? Um, um, before COVID, um, because this is, uh, the area South Bronx has come up a lot. Um, there's a lot of new buildings, a lot of new apartment buildings. Um, the banknote building across the street for many years was abandoned. It's now got shops, schools, offices, uh, film studio. It's huge. Okay. So the area economically has come up. However, also right across from the street from us now is a homeless shelter that is uh, pretty bad. There's a lot of violence. There's a lot of drugs. And the sisters used to be able to have people come and pray in the chapel. They'd ring the doorbell, come in, but it actually got kind of dangerous. Yeah. So now that doesn't happen. And then they used to have Sunday mass for the local people. Then with COVID that stopped. So this is one of my jobs to figure out because a monastery is not supposed to be isolated from its neighborhood. Okay. It has to be, it should be a place that people come and experience God. And we don't have to do programs. We just have to be there. So I'm trying to get some help. How do we do that here in Hunts Point in 2023? Not 2019, <laughs> you know. Uh, I've gotten some ideas. I hope maybe we can initiate something. Hmm. Uh, the people in the area love the nuns. They, there's no problem. We don't feel unsafe at all. Um, yeah. They, you go out. If you have to go out for something, they see you. They're, they're thrilled. Yeah. I see stuff. 
there's a story of one of the sisters um, had to go to the dentist and it was down the street. So she, she was an elderly sister and she walked there and this man came up to her and he's like, Mother Teresa, Mother Teresa, bless me. And she blessed him. <laughs> she didn't say, I'm not Mother Teresa. She Wait, is she allowed to bless happy. people? Are you guys allowed to bless? Well, she blessed him. She did okay. it. She just yeah. blessed him. She said it made him happy. <laughs> huh. I think it's a great story. So, so I'm trying to imagine the relationship between the nuns and the friars of your order. And I don't, I don't know if like, I can't see you guys like giving, like you receive a word and then you deliver it to the friars, but there is like, you're bringing light to them or, or there is some sort of, maybe you're not conscious of it. Maybe it's improper to even think about it, but they're like, Oh, it's very important. Like you're bringing warmth, joy, like, like the uh, content, there's some sort of content that you're offering to them that they are then uh, infused with and then they bring to the world. They're, they're, it just seems like a marriage on a spiritual level. It's more brother and sister. We're brothers and sisters. Um, and um, they, we each have our particular role to play in this common mission. And maybe we can't really see exactly what it is. But, okay, it's also a spiritual motherhood on its deepest level that um, most nuns, I I remember the first time I experienced this as a postulant, I thought I was so unique. (laughs) And I told my novice sister, and she's like, welcome, you're becoming a Dominican nun, you know, that the Lord implanted in my, my heart, really, and I don't usually use that language, this just very, very deep love for, for people and and I would see all these prayer intentions, and I felt like I was becoming a spiritual mother to these people in a way that I can't really. That's the only word I can use. And so, in many ways, we become we are the spiritual mothers of these people. And we the biggest thing is that that they can be their hearts can be open to receive whatever the Lord wants of them. And you know, uh, I'm from the countryside, but. Uh, you have to till soil. Well, now they don't want you to till, but you have to do something with soil to put seeds in. You just can't, you leave the seed laying on the top. The birds are going to come. The crows are going to come right away and you're not going to have any seeds. So really our life of prayer is kind of like tilling the soil so that, and this is just coming from the gospel, right? So that the brothers who preach the word of God can find a a home for it, for it, for it to take root. Hmm. Um, that's kind of the imagery there. And like, I love it when the friars will call up or say, Oh sister, um, I'm going to be preaching here. Or we have a young adult group doing this, or I have to give this talk or I have to do this. Please pray for me on that day. Um, and I feel so privileged that I've been, it's really like a gift I've been entrusted with that those days are a little easier to be penitential. Do you ever, are you ever called to go and pray or to attend? Is your presence remote? Um, sometimes you, you, we're asked, but that's not yeah. really our, okay. our charism. Um, we try to live a closer life as much as we can. Uh, and we really kind of feel out of like fish out of water and we feel out of place. Yeah. I've had, I've been at a few things and I just feel like I'm, this isn't right. Okay. Uh, then it's not wrong, uh, but it doesn't feel right. Yeah. But, uh, you're zooming with me. I know. <laughs> so, it, it, how does the the role 
that this is a new technology. The world is changing, exactly. and it's going exactly. to affect your order. So, how what is the calling to be involved to turn on podcasts? Or I don't even know how you found my little talk. Um, oh, it's because um, uh, what's her name? Um, Maria. Maria yeah. Blandell. Yeah. She wrote that really good article about contemplative life. Yes. But I also could tell when I read it, this is someone who hasn't lived the life yet. And then I typed in her name to see if she had written more. And I saw the podcast, which was really good. She's really, she's, she's, she's really got a lot of, of she's really prayed and thought about this a lot. You can tell. Yeah. Um, but again, it's coming out of, uh, it's not coming out of a lived experience. The lived experience is a little, not as nice. <laughs> it's mm. a little more practical. Hmm. Oh, so all this thing, this is something we talk about as nuns. So um, enclosure is no longer just a physical thing. And what does it mean to be able to do Zoom and podcasts? Yes. And that's kind of something that we're all trying to understand. Yes. And I think individual monasteries, individual sisters, um, this is not something I would like to do that often. Um, yeah. I do it occasionally. Um, Why? And I, because I I've been at in the past I've been asked or I've been asked by my priors to do it. And this is the first time someone's asked me and I realized I didn't have a priors to ask oh, you <laughs> for were. the blessing. Yeah. And I had to make that decision, you know? So I just see it as a moment of, um, okay, the Lord has given me this moment maybe to share about the beauty of monastic life mm. and about belonging to God. But I would never have a regular podcast myself or want to be on something regularly, nor do I think it would be appropriate. Yeah. Well, this is like if you have a youth group coming to the parlor and you give them a talk, you do it occasionally, but you're not doing it all the time. Yeah. So it's kind of that thing. what is the beauty of the monastic life and dedicating oneself to God? It's spring free for God. It's a sheer gift. Really, yeah. you're not giving up anything. You People think you're giving up all kinds of things. Yeah. You're not. You're just not giving up anything. I mean, you can have moments where you think this is the craziest thing in the world, but just being free for God. And that isn't like a feeling thing or you have wonderful experiences in prayer. It's yeah. just this knowing. It's just a knowing um, that this is what God wants of me in my life and what he made me for. Um, and ultimately, for eternity, we're going to be contemplating the face of God. So he just gave me an early start. Mm which is an amazing gift. I don't take it lightly. Um, and it's not that I didn't enjoy doing all kinds of things before I was a nun. I love doing all kinds of things. Um, but here I really just, uh, 32 years in, um, I also feel like I'm just learning what this life is all about. And honestly, that's the truth. Especially when you meet an old nun and you realize, oh, I have a long way to go. <laughs> oh, well, what's the, what, what is that manifestation of, of time? How does, the how older does this nuns? life, sh yeah, shape you, shape them? <laughs> the older nuns, when you meet with them, you have this experience of a single-mindedness and a simplicity and that they are even more themselves. There's this, they really flourish as when they really live this life and I've known nuns that they've had tumultuous years and then I've known them in their last years. And I'm like, they are so fully themselves and so free. Hmm. It's something absolutely beautiful, but it took them a lifetime to get there. So I think this is great, you know, 
nuns live forever, but there's a reason for it. (laughs) And it's, and I'm not the only one. So many younger sisters will say this, what a privilege it is to be with and get to know uh, the older nuns. It's a meta. What do you mean being more yourself? Can we, can we, can we communicate that to other people, I guess, outside of the presence of somebody who's fully themselves? Um, when you meet somebody who's like fully themselves and there's a freedom and there's a um, there's something about that person that you just get this sense that this is someone who is just they're not they have they have accepted who God made them to be. They accept their limitations. They accept the gifts God has given them and they're not and they're there's an going out of themselves towards others that you experience, experience it with the older sisters. Hmm. Um, and they might be, uh, how do I explain it? Cause you know, they have a lot of illnesses or limitations and they get frustrated because of those limitations, but they just, they don't try to have a veneer or be something else. Hmm. And you just get the sense of, I can't wait to be like that. Yeah. You know, they totally, at peace that they belong to God and that they they're his child and whatever. It's something beautiful. It really is. Have you seen that conversion over the last 32 years in your own life? Oh yeah. I've seen that with sisters. I have. I I mean, and they were sisters. I knew not me. No, (laughs) 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 no, I think I see I'm less impatient than I used to be. Uh, I don't, maybe I'm worn out, but I think maybe that, um, I'm a little bit, uh, less, I have a little bit less expectations and demands of the life than I had when I was younger. Hmm. Um, now that I'm priors, it's a grace. There's so many times. And I know when I was in priors, I'd be like, that should be dealt with. And now I'm like, Oh, in the scheme of things, it's not that important. So I think that's the grace of being priorist hmm. because yeah. I wasn't like this before I was priorist. <laughs> yeah. Well, but you, you, I'm sure our lives have an arc um, and that one can't be fully themselves. Maybe it's possible. I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But I can see that, that being in the middle of age, you need to, you know, engage with the world and understand the, mm-hmm. the veneers and the passions are still mm-hmm. important to move and shake mm-hmm. and fix the steeples and the sidewalks and stuff like that, kind of <laughs> being on the ball of things. Um, yeah. So th- th- there's a pr- propriety or a properness to, um, to growing into that. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so too. As your yeah, responsibilities you just... change. Right. Your responsibilities change and, yeah, I think so. Absolutely. Um, so I, I haven't thought too much about it. I just know nuns tend to live long lives <laughs> in general. Something in the water. I was just, I was speaking to a neuroscientist uh, yesterday who's also a Catholic oh, wow. and we were talking okay. about um, the power of prayer and what the okay. prayer does on a neurological level. And um, I'm sure that being so close to that life and participating in prayer on a lot um, is probably really healthy in a lot of ways. I've heard this. I've heard these studies. I find that absolutely fascinating that they've been able to sort of concretely have some, see some kind of, I just find that fascinating. It's it's about the, the, the whole, whole, the brain starts to, to communicate yeah. to itself in the same way that it does when it's dreaming. 
like the, yeah, the, yeah, 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 yeah. But I just can't because for me, I mean, um, I, I I can't say I even have any prayer experiences. I think it just becomes more and more simple mm. of just being present to the Lord and <laughs> distractions, <laughs> but and being at peace with that really. Um, not trying to create something. So maybe that's sort of similar. I don't, I don't know. I, I don't think about it like I used to. I don't try to create a good prayer, you know? Oh, did you have a good time? Did you have a good prayer? I don't know. <laughs> how, how, um, what's, uh, what, um, percentage of your day is in prayer? Um, I guess it's about five hours total when you put it together. Cause we have the divine office. That's harder because that's com- that's our liturgical life of prayer, which is just as Im- is more important actually, because your private prayer, your your time of prayer, flows out of that. Doesn't go the other way. Well, kind of they go together, right? So, yeah. but the church deputes us to this liturgical life of prayer. Um, that's our official job, and then we have about two hours or so of private prayer, depending yeah. on. It's not always the same depending on the day, but it's about two hours. And some sisters take more, um, depending on again their schedules. So it's it's about that. Um, I don't think really anything of it. You know, hmm. it's just part of my it's my life. It's yeah. you know when I've had to be out of the monastery and I've had to be um, either. My my mom's dead now, but I've had to go home take care of my dad for a little bit or something. I just uh, I feel like I'm starving because oh. I haven't had those moments. And I know I'm doing what I need to do, and the Lord wants me to. Yeah. But um, I also just and I'm not gonna die and have some kind of spiritual crisis, you know. But I do feel a little like depleted, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So that's just the way it is. It's like anybody. You know, you have responsibilities and you parents and they're raising children and, you know, you can't always, you know, you have a responsibility the Lord has given you at that time. Yeah. And he provides because, I mean, the tradition, the monastic tradition coming from scripture is that if you are centered on the Lord and that you, you know, implicitly, not even explicitly, that you're praying always. And, and that's true. Uh, but having those, there goes the bell, having yeah. those times dedicated to the Lord in prayer, you can't, you have to have those, whatever length of time they are, you have to have those. Yeah. Uh, or else, like a married couple who never sit down to talk, you can become a ship passing in the night with the Lord, you know, you're like, yeah. hi, bye. <laughs> he's present to us, he, he's not the problem, you're the problem, <laughs> you know, it's the same thing, mm. he is. Is there, um, I'll let you go because the bell is ringing. Okay. Thank yeah. you for your time. Is there a, a particular, I guess, essay or poem or prayer that has been really impactful for you or like writing? I don't know the correct words because you guys are Catholic. You guys have all these words for all these different things. <laughs> I don't know. Is there, is there something that that's guided you or that you've uh, returned to or that's been really impactful for you that you would like to share? That Probably certain, um, uh, psalms, certain uh, um, sections of psalms um, that have been just, you know, we have this very old tradition of called rumination. It just ruminates in my heart and it's a part of me. Um, and there's two. Um, 
And I forget what Psalm this is from because I'm a Catholic. We don't remember where things come from in the Bible. Um, <laughs> um, and it, what Psalm is it? Uh, I see it in my breviary, you know, my office book. Um, uh, and uh, now I can't do it because I'm on the spot. No. Yeah. Oh, Lord, um, in your light, we see light itself. And what's the phrase before that? I say it all the time to the Lord. I just lost it because I'm in your light. We see light itself. Light itself, which I forget what's on that. And then my favorite is, um, in your justice, I will see your face and be filled when I awake with the sight of your glory. Mm -hmm. I love that. That is Psalm <laughs> sixteen, I think it is. It's the last line of it. Isn't that terrible? I don't even remember what it is. Um, I love that because that is like the whole goal. Of our life here that we don't really see fully we see darkly but we trust that in the end in god's light we will see light itself mm. and god is full light mm. and um so that was my quote for my silver jubilee because i love that so much so i think mostly just different um lines from the psalms i just i find myself uh, repeating and praying they come from me. They're the Psalms with their mind, you know, that kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. And just the, you know, we pray the glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit. I got that as a penance and confession one day that had recently, I've never received that. He just said, just say one glory be to the Father. And I thought, whoa, Father just gave me a glory be. And I found myself all day, just glory be to the Father and to the Son and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. Just my whole day, I just want to give glory to God. So it was great penance. Um, anyway. <laughs> you know, we think of penance as punishment, but it's not that. It's a discipline. It's an act. Yeah. 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 And I just, I just, like, when he said, just, just say the glory be to the Father. But I thought all day, I just want, it just gave me this. And we pray the glory be at the end of every psalm and the rosary, but this was something different. You yeah. know, this this was like, hallelujah. <laughs> anyway, on that note, I should close. I should stop talking. And I have to go talk to the Lord. Okay. Well, uh, tell him about you. <laughs> yeah. Tell him hi for me. Um, I'll, I'll, I I'll talk to him too um, pretty soon. Here, okay. So. Thank you so much. So thank you. Yes. Thank you. This was fun. This yeah. was easier than I thought it would be. I try to make and it I easy. I appreciate it. You do. You're easy to talk to. Yeah, that's why. That's my job. Okay. Thank you. <laughs> All right, sister. Have a good night. Okay. God bless you. God bless you too.